Long hours, small teams, uninspiring content. Marketing for a startup is hard work, but it doesn't have to be. HubSpot for startups can help you grow your business without growing your stress. Their all-in-one platform connects your sales, marketing, and support all together so you can increase leads, fast-track deals, smooth out support, and join a platform that more than 190,000 top brands trust. Plus, they have a constantly evolving collection of resources to help startups scale. HubSpot also offers discounts for startups on their top-rated customer platform, and not the kind of discounts that barely make a dent. I'm talking about meaningful savings of up to 90%. So if you're ready to crush your marketing, look no further than HubSpot for startups. To see how much you can save, visit HubSpot.com startups. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. I knew how the book cover functioned as a marketing piece, not a representation of the story. And too many authors think it represents the story, and it does not. Welcome to Creative Elements, a show where we talk to your favorite creators and learn what it takes to make a living from your art and creativity. I'm your host, Jay Klaus. Let's start the show. Hello, my friend. Welcome back to another episode of Creative Elements. Last week, the podcast nearly broke into the top 50 shows in the careers category on Apple Podcasts. It was our highest chart position in a while, and I would love to keep reaching higher and higher and break that top 50 mark. You can play a really big role in that. If you haven't already, please take a moment to leave a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. A high velocity in new ratings and reviews really helps push the show up the charts. And that means good things for both of us. Great guests, great partners, more time and resources to invest into the show. It goes a long, long way. And if you're not an Apple user, please consider leaving a rating on Spotify instead. It's a new feature. You just go to the show page and click the star icon. Speaking of Apple, today on the show, I'm speaking with Mariah Sinclair, an award-winning designer who got her start in the 1980s because she was an early user of Apple computers. My summers were spent with my grandparents, and my grandfather had a Lisa computer. When it was too hot to go swimming in Texas, he would sit me up in the computer, and I would probably on the Macintosh, it was play with Mac Paint or Super Paint and draw things pixel by pixel, but it was more of a toy for me. It wasn't a computer. That was Mariah. Her early start learning how to use computers for design helped her to land some really great design gigs early in her career, even without a college education. During most of her early career, she worked for advertising agencies as a designer and digital marketer, serving Fortune 500 companies in the city of Los Angeles. As we'll hear in this interview, she even became an art director by age 28, her dream job. But things weren't always good. And her story isn't a story of success after success after success. And that's why I'm really excited to share her story here today. I love hosting the show and I love telling the stories of the creators that have appeared on the show. 
Their stories are all inspiring and they're all encouraging. Sometimes, though, these creators make things look really easy. And not every creator's journey is easy. They aren't always quick and they aren't always linear. After becoming an art director at age 28, Mariah felt like she needed a new goal, a new path now that she had achieved what she had set out to do. And that pursuit set her down a long and winding road. I moved to locations and then I find work. I jumped into a bunch of different careers. I was a career advisor for a culinary school in San Francisco. I was a talent scout for entertainment at one point. I mean, I had some interesting stories, but there was no growth on a ladder. There was lots of little unconnected things. I'm a clinical hypnotherapist, actually, and tried to have a hypnotherapy business in New Orleans. So I have a lot of these strange little disconnected things while I was trying to find the path in my 30s, the new thing. And it was really hard. It didn't come easily. I have great stories at cocktail parties, but that doesn't pay the bills. And it was a hard time. As you'll hear, that hardship landed Mariah back at home with her parents. And though she wasn't happy to be moving back in with her parents at age 40, that decision is actually what started a new path for Mariah. She rediscovered her love for design, and specifically, she discovered book cover design. I start looking at different genres of covers, and I see a cover that says, Live and Let Chai. And I'm like, what is that? What is Live and Let Chai? I chuckle because I love puns. And that was my introduction to Cozy Mysteries. Cozy Mysteries. That is Mariah's new home as a book cover designer. It's niche, sure, but it's her niche. In that world of cozy mystery novels, Mariah is known as the queen of cozy. So what is a cozy mystery? The things that make a cozy mystery in in our day and age right now, obviously a mystery, clean, no bad words, no on-screen sex, no gore. They're very sweet. Uh, For those of a certain age might remember a TV show called Murder, she wrote. That is your perfect cozy mystery. Amateur sleuth, she was an author, not a detective, but she's solving all these crimes, murder, (laughs) generally, but there was nothing offensive about it other than murder, but even the murder just seems sanitized in some way. And then at the end, justice is served. And you can see in our time right now why readers might be craving justice. For the last couple of decades, a lot of people have felt that high-ranking people have been getting away with stuff. And in these cute little communities where everyone knows each other's name, justice is served. And that's very satisfying for the readers. The cozy mystery genre has been growing a lot over the past few years. Mariah earns hundreds of dollars per hour designing these book covers, and she's built a devoted audience of authors who build stories around her covers. And her clients regularly dominate the top of the cozy mystery charts on Amazon. Today, Mariah sometimes designs hundreds of pre-made covers and lists them for sale all at once, earning thousands of dollars within minutes and sometimes crashing her website in the process. So in this episode, we talk about her first book cover design in 2001 and why it took 14 years to design her second, how self-published authors earn their living, the role a book cover plays in the success of a book, how she built up her own clientele, and why always chasing a new challenge 
hasn't always been a positive experience. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this episode as you listen. You can find me on Twitter at jklaus or on Instagram at creativeelements.fm. Tag me, say hello, let me know that you're listening. And now let's talk to Mariah. I am of an age where there was a big change in the world in the early 90s, where graphic design moved more to the computer. Even before that, it was it was hand done. And so the people that were running agencies who were in their 40s, 50s, weren't necessarily computer adept. And I had started working on a Mac. I mean, working is a strong word. I got exposed to Macintosh computers in 1984. Actually, the first Mac I worked on wasn't even a Mac. I sat at a Lisa at nine years old. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And then when I was in high school, I joined the yearbook staff, mainly for writing. I just wanted to write articles for the yearbook. But that year, they moved from a PC-based to a Mac-based. And I was the only one who had ever touched a Mac before. So I was at 15, training, training, using the word very loosely, my fellow students on Macs. <laughs> and so you were the boss. I was the boss. And our faculty advisor, she, I grew up in Southern California, and my faculty advisor actually was an animator for Disney occasionally, more of the cleanup animation towards the end, I guess. Not, not a high-ranking animator. And she graduated from Art Center in Pasadena. So she kind of exposed us to this world. We took field trips to Art Center as high school students, which which was mind-blowing and incredible and expensive. Art Center, Mm. like, I remember the quote, and keep in mind, this is like 1990, 1991. So we're going way back in time. And we asked, like, well, how much is it? And they're like, well, including your supplies, your housing and everything, you're looking at fifty to $60,000 a year. The tuition oh itself gosh. was, you know, $35,000, $40,000 a year. My parents were like, no, 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 no. <laughs> and then I'm kind of a spoiled brat. And so my answer to no is, well, then fine, I'm not going to go to college. If I can't go to what I want to do... I'm going to like, what is that phrase? Cut off my nose to spite my face. Yeah. <laughs> but Call I did. on the bluff. <laughs> yeah, right. And I'm not sure I won because <laughs> I ended up not going to college, but I had this computer skill. I had a great mentor in yearbook who taught me a lot of the fundamentals of design. And then I moved, uh, my first job was at a print shop in high school at age 16. I was working at a print shop doing desktop publishing. And eventually, after working at other print shops and Kinko's, for anyone who remembers Kinko's, I worked in the computer department. I finally got more of a real job in quote unquote advertising, but they were really just mom and pop shops who needed helpers behind the scenes. I did uh, the mayor of Los Angeles' website, but he would have no idea who I was. I was the, the, you know, the lackey behind the curtain, you know, while my boss was the, the person who was doing all the work. Mm, classic. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so you're this person behind the curtain. You're helping out your boss get the credit for the work that you're doing. 
I read that you designed your first book cover in 2001. So how long was that into your behind the curtain designing for other people career? I started designing in 1992. I mean, really before that, if we consider my desktop publishing years. So I was working at a small ad agency in the Sierra Nevada mountains. And this was a little less behind the scenes. We were a little agency of about five people. And we had um, the owner of the agency, a woman, but clients knew we were working on their projects. So that was a little more standardized. So it was very small and it was in a small town. It was much more of what you think of an agency of we all went to an office. We all had our own computers and I shared an office with another designer. Back then, book publishing was uh, you worked, you got a book deal from a traditional publisher or you did what's called vanity publishing, where you buy 3,000, 4,000 books and you hope to sell them. You hope to put them into, uh, yeah, it was before Amazon. It was before the Wild West of of self-publishing with print on demand. So it was, it was still like self-publishing, but you had to buy inventory. You had to have a lot. There are so many people probably from the 90s and early aughts that have boxes and boxes of their books in their garage that they had to buy, mainly to make it price-friendly. You know, there was not print-on-demand as we know it now. So to you as an author wanting to sell your book, you had to buy 3,000 copies of it so you could retail it for $10. If you only bought 100, you were paying 20 or $25 a piece. Well, you couldn't sell a paperback for $30. So the first one I did was a metaphysical biker story. Remember, I lived in a small town in the Sierra Nevadas. <laughs> Channeling Biker Bob was the name of it. Now, I was a graphic designer. I didn't know anything about book marketing at that point. And in a lot of ways, it didn't quite matter. I mean, 20 years later, book marketing is a lot different. So, you know, I wanted to bring in the metaphysical side of it. So I used kind of a casual script typeface, but I put Chrome on it to bring in that biker. And the author had had two photos that he wanted to put on there. So I did, um, at that time, in retrospect, a pretty crude photo manipulation of the biker, you know, traveling on this sandy, I think it was a desert scene. You can probably go on Amazon and see the cover. I think he has it on Amazon, channeling Biker Bob. I'm doing it right now. Yeah. So that was my first book cover. And that was through the ad agency. So small town ad agencies... They kind of do anything that walks in through the door for the most part to keep the doors open. So he was a jeweler. I think she did some uh, branding for his jewelry company. And now that he had a book that he was selling, he walked in and says, can you do a book cover for me? Sure. So I did. <laughs> what was that like doing this for the first time? Were you excited to take this on? Did you want to do book covers before? I didn't have a whole lot of connection to book covers before. I liked it. I liked it a lot more than the corporate gigs. I don't align very well with just doing corporate work. And yet, when you work for an ad agency, guess what you're doing? A bunch of, I mean, that's the job. (laughs) Totally. (laughs) That's the job. And that, 
I loved that I was working for a creative and he generally had booths during our street fairs in the small town selling his jewelry. So it was wonderful to walk up and like talk to him and I'd see my book there. So he'd have all of his little jewelry cases out and then he'd have a little stand for his book and he'd be selling his book there. Our local bookstore had the book. So I felt more connected to that project than so many of our other projects. I didn't go to the casinos in Tahoe that we did work for. And so much of the material we made for them was for behind the scenes corporate internal communications. That wasn't stuff I had access to and would see just walking on the street. But I saw this book everywhere. And I was proud and it was nice to know the person and that it was another creative, another individual. That part I love. So that was book cover number one. You've now designed yeah. almost 1,400 book covers. So yeah. how did this go from a client that was local that came into an agency to now this is what Mariah does? Well, this wasn't, book cover design was never really the dream. I wanted to be an art director for magazines. Magazines was where my passion was. And I got that from when I was on yearbook staff back in in high school. I loved layout design with photos, headline, text. And after that ad agency, I was able to work on a local magazine, a local arts magazine quarterly that came out. And it was an art magazine for about eight counties in the Sierras. And I loved that. And so this time, I think I'm about 28 and I have arrived. I've done the dream that high school Mariah wanted. Sure, it wasn't Harper's Bazaar. You know, it was a small local magazine, but I was doing it. It was, you know, I was the, the main designer. I got to call myself an art director, but I don't know how. The publisher was a lot of the art director, too. Own it. Own it. You were the art director. I was. I was the art director. And I arrived. And then I made a huge mistake at least in my life, at least looking back, I consider it a mistake. I did that for two or three years. And then I went, well, I've done what I set out to do in graphic design. Now what? And I decided to investigate other careers altogether. And I regret that. Talk to me about that, because a lot of people listening to this are probably in a similar boat where like they may have achieved something in their late twenties or early thirties, maybe in early twenties, that was like the thing. And now they have that. And now it's like, what am I rowing towards? So tell me about why you regret that. Because it's really hard. <laughs> I mean, it's, I think just because I accomplished it doesn't mean I have to leave it behind. Just because I'm looking for a new challenge doesn't mean that I had to burn what I had already built over 12 years in a career. And in my mind, I I, in my youth, probably, I didn't quite realize that. After a quick break, Mariah and I talk about her many careers, why she eventually landed back at home living with her parents at age 40, and how that difficult time actually led her back to book covers. And later, Mariah shares how she now sells more than 200 covers in just a few minutes. So stick around, and we'll be right back. D2C Pod, hosted by Ramon Berrios and Blaine Bolas, is brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network, the audio destination for business professionals. D2C Pod is a podcast about all things direct to consumer. Ramon and Blaine cover everything for starting, growing, and optimizing e-commerce stores and D2C brands. They talk with founders, marketers, and creators and cover topics like brand building, social media, influencer marketing, website conversion, paid media, consumer trends, email marketing, and more. 
So if you're interested in the stories behind your favorite consumer brands, listen to DTC Pod wherever you get your podcasts. If you work with clients and you want to grow your top line revenue without growing a big payroll at the same time, then consider attending the Solopreneur Summit, a VIP event hosted by my friend Ken Yarmish. Ken has personally closed over $50 million in his career as a solopreneur, all in professional services. I've learned a lot from Ken, and he's worked with some of the biggest names today. People like Matt Barker, Nasheen Chen, Laura Acosta, and Jake Ward trust Ken to get clearer offers and scale their business with systems. Now, Ken is running a two-day in-person summit on May 9th and 10th to help you build systems across marketing, sales, and client delivery. So now you too can grow without hiring. This will be a workshop setting. It's the anti-loud, obnoxious conference with no more than 50 people who will go deep with Ken and other experts that he's brought in to solve actual problems in your business. Ken and his invited experts will show you their proven systems across personal branding, driving inbound leads, social selling, crafting scalable offers, using AI to automate client delivery, and more. Stop guessing and start learning from those who are three to five steps ahead of you. Get actionable tactics and proven systems to accelerate your pipeline, close more deals, and get out of client delivery hell. Head to trs.club slash summit to learn more and register for the Solopreneur Summit today. At that website, you'll see some of the other experts that are coming in that will allow you to go behind the scenes and look at their actual businesses. Again, that URL is trs.club slash summit. One last time, that's trs.club slash summit. Welcome back to my conversation with the queen of cozy, Mariah Sinclair. Before the break, Mariah gave us a lot of her winding backstory full of career twists and turns with so many different locations and so many different vocations. I asked her if there was something in particular that she was looking for that she was so driven to try the next thing and then the next thing. So I'm always looking for career fulfillment, like being satisfied by my career. I don't have a lot of a personal life. I'm not married. I don't have kids. And so I put probably too much emphasis on being fulfilled through my career because I'm not fulfilled in other things. So I was looking for fulfillment, not able to find it in corporate environments without, you know, I don't have a college degree. So I was always generally on a lower rung, especially as time marched on. I was able to become a manager at the Culinary Academy, but this was, during my time there, they moved to a multinational for-profit entity, and they have now closed. They were sued multiple times for being unethical. And I was a part of that machine. And I ended up leaving because I just, even though I was helping graduates after they graduated, finding jobs and my individual role in that machine was a good one. I was part of a very unethical machine that was ruining a lot of people's lives by charging exorbitant tuition prices and not giving a good education. So in a lot of ways, I loved that job, but the apparatus I was in was a bad apparatus. The entertainment industry, I mean, there was no place for me to move up. That was fun, great for stories, but it was not, it was not a career job. My grandmother was in Texas. As I mentioned before, I spent my summers in Texas with my grandparents. My grandfather had 
long since died. My grandma wasn't doing so well, and so we decided a family member needed to kind of get a little closer. I sat in Texas going, okay, well, I can't go back to San Francisco because of the cost. And really, once San Francisco kicks you out, it's very hard to come back without a job offer. We're still in the recession. I'm like, well, what did I like about San Francisco? I'm like, I like architecture. I love, I love how unique the city is. From the viewpoint of Texas, I'm looking around, what's close to that? New Orleans. So I found myself in New Orleans. And uh, this was, you know, this is 2008. Like I have in my closet CDs with meditation and hypnosis recordings. This was just as we were moving to a digital form with downloads, but not quite there. So I was kind of bridging that gap once again with technology. And it, it fascinates me because that was what, 12 years ago? 13 years ago, like how fast this moves, how fast technology, just the platforms, just lightning speed. I focused on birth hypnosis in New Orleans, which I really loved. But as a woman in her late 30s who was single and really wanted to have babies, that's an interesting, Mm -hmm. that's an interesting situation to be in. Loved it. Loved helping these couples. It was both the husband and the wife that showed up to my classes. I was building physical intimacy and helping them address their fears. And it was amazing. But boy, when they left my front office, my living room, which was my office, when they left, oh, did my heart sink in sadness because Mm -hmm. it just was so far away from me. New Orleans was becoming more violent. It was... um, harder for me to feel safe in the city. And money was really hard. I think it's interesting creatives that struggle and you can kind of know the level of poverty. Like the way I judge it is that I knew a bag of black beans cost $1.65 and would feed me for three days. Like that's Mm. when you know you've hit a certain level of poverty and, and frustration. I was just done. I was so sick of struggling. So I called, I kind of pulled the emergency string and called my parents and said, can I come and live with you guys? So now I'm hitting 40 and I'm moving in with my parents. And that's how I ended up in Arizona where I am now. And wow, was that a huge sink emotionally, spiritually. No one wants to be 40 moving in with their parents, but it was necessary. And now seeing where I am, it was really important to do that because it got me back on the graphic design path. My parents were retired. They were in photo club. They wanted to learn Photoshop. They were buying all these horrible tutorials that were showing them the three different ways to select an object. And I'm like, these guys just want to create art. So they got their little photo club together in the living room. And I said, here, guys, I'm just going to show you some fun things in Photoshop. I'm going to show you how to blend two pictures together. That's what they want to do. Here's how you blend. Here's how you create funny little brushes that create bubbles and fairies. And you can add little fairies to your pictures of the woods. That's all they wanted. They wanted to create art and use it as a creative tool. They loved that class. And through that class, I was like, wait, this is fun. I miss this. And now the world has changed. We have stock sites. We didn't have stock sites back in the 90s. 
We didn't have any of that. Like design became so much easier. YouTube tutorials, so much easier. So I just started having a ton of fun. I was living with my parents, didn't have to pay rent. I just got really creative. And then I saw book cover design and I, I just kind of dipped my toe in. And this was like, if I'm doing my math right, this is like seven or eight years after you had done Biker Bob. Oh, at least. No, more than that. I moved back in my parents in 2015. Okay. So like 14 years between book cover mm-hmm. number one and book cover, book cover number, number two. two. <laughs> so when you say you saw book cover design, like, what does that mean? What, where did you see it? Did you look at a book and go, oh, somebody designed that? Or, or <laughs> was it like a job listing? So I started with digital illustration and having fun with photos again. And, and I was on DeviantArt. And I was kind of following some of the creative tutorials there because the tools, Photoshop, everything, assets had just changed so much in the last 15 years. So I was on DeviantArt looking at these amazing digital manipulators, um, just incredible. But I'd see in their portfolios, they'd have book covers. And then I saw, I think, probably a link to 99designs, which I, I have conflicting views on. But 99designs, if you don't know, is a, a, it's a context site where a client will post a brief and then 100 designers will contribute a design. Only the winner gets paid. So it's a, yeah, it's a speculative site. Great when you're living with your parents. Great when you're a student. And it was good for me because I got to dip my toe in, see if it was something I wanted to do before officially hanging up my shingle before starting a website, before I knew if this was a path, then I would become a professional and put up a website. But this was a really great way to just clear out the cobwebs in my brain regarding design and test it out. Also get in touch with authors' pain points. Like that's me. I'm a marketer. I'm a business person. So I'm like, okay, what what do they miss when they're on these types of sites? What sort of issues do they have? Learned as much as I could about how book covers function as a marketing piece, not just a piece of art or a piece of design. And I did that for about six months, probably. And maybe even a little after I hung up my official shingle, got my website up. I am a book designer, January 2017. That's when I officially started my business. I was really concerned about competition because I did see a lot of book cover designers when I was researching it. And I was like, oh, and after failing, what I felt was failing as a hypnotherapist, I just, I was burnt. I didn't want to fail again. Didn't want to be in a really competitive environment. And then I saw the statistic that three to 5,000 books are published a day on a Amazon. A day? A day. This was back in 2017. They have since wow. removed the number that they they used to show you New releases in the next 30 days. There was a little link at the very top of Amazon and it would do the big multi-million number and you could just do the math. And you're like, oh, that's three to 5,000 a day. They have since removed that little line. So I don't know if it's still that much. It's probably around that though. I can't imagine that number shifting a whole lot. Yeah, I don't imagine self-publishing is getting smaller. And this is part of why I was really interested in chatting with you because when I think about books, like in my mind, there's like 20 books released a year. And if you're going to do book cover design, like you need to work with John Grisham or Ryan Holiday and like, that's it. So like, it just blew my mind what you're doing with your business, not to bury the lead here. So you're doing this on 99 designs for several yeah. months. Were you winning the bids? I was. So 
Among the designers, we discussed this. A successful design win, designer generally wins 30% of all contests that they enter. That's successful. Really? So you're saying most people aren't successful. So you're usually <laughs> losing like everything. You're saying yeah. a good designer wins a third, a little less than a third of what they do. Yeah. So, I, I mean, that's a lot of work. You learn how to be fast. I have a very competitive nature. I remember when I first found 99designs and I saw all the open competitions. I think I designed like 80 book covers in three weeks. My eyes were stinging because I, I just have an addictive personality and I have to be aware of that. And this is a great way to have an addictive personality, like is through you know, design. So I, I, I remember my eyes stinging. I was designing so much. I'm like, Oh, my eyes sting. And my mom's like, take a break. How many hours like for one book cover? Well, at the time, a lot. So at the time I was still kind of readapting to Photoshop and design and checking out assets, spending way too long looking for assets. So I, I remember thinking to myself, yeah, I really hit my sweet spot around six hours on a design. Like I remember that's when it really came together was between that four and six hour spot. Five years later, I rarely spend six hours on a design. Like rarely. <laughs> That's when I'm fighting with it. And generally I put it aside and revisit it if I hit that long. So now is it like four? Is it like two? I can be really quick, Jay. <laughs> <laughs> so the fastest I am is doing my pre-designed covers. The pre-mades is what they're known in the industry. Because that's based on my idea, not a client's idea. So I probably have found a piece, a couple of pieces of stock that inspired me. I'm not searching for it. It was the stock images and the that inspired the idea. And I will do a set of six in a series, which is a similar design, just repeated six times. And I can do that in two to three hours for a set of six. How much does a 99 design campaign typically pay out if you win? Hmm. And this is why I don't like 99 designs. At the time I was there, I think it was $200, $250 if you won. What I don't like is that the people that were buying it were paying 500, 550. Wow. They were taking a 50% cut. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. And the thing is, is, is if you are an author, especially in 2017, $500 would buy you cream of the crop art from a freelancer, not from 99designs. People on 99designs are new to the business, are students. Someone like me who's maybe just clearing out the cobwebs, you're not necessarily getting the cream yeah. of the crop. Or someone who just has no network or like book of business mm -hmm. or like means of getting in touch with the clients directly, right? And it's the same yeah. model as like Upwork and Fiverr mm -hmm. in some ways. It is. Other than it's not Upwork, you're filling out bids for free, but you're not doing the work for free. Yeah. 99 Designs, you're doing the work for free until you win. The other thing is there isn't any sort of consulting angle. So a little tip for anyone who's on 99designs, you're not necessarily creating the best book cover that will make the most sales for the client. Like that's my job now as a freelancer, because I know that client's going to keep on coming back. And I know my books are going to end up on the bestseller list, which I can use as promo. When you're on 99designs, you're doing designs that fit the client's brief the best, even if that brief is radically wrong for making book sales. 
And that's a, that's a problem for the client that they don't necessarily realize. Is there any process of revision or is it like, here's my brief, I get all the designs and then I pick the one that I want and that's it? Ideally, that's how it works. But many times they do give feedback. Then you find yourself in a revision cycle for free because a winner hasn't been announced. So then you can resubmit new designs in the competition based on their feedback. But how many hours should you be putting into this? How many other people did he have revise their design? You like to think you're the only one. And if you just make this little change, you're the winner. But there may have been five others with little changes too. It's a horse race. <laughs> How did you make this leap? Because a lot of people listening to this are probably creators themselves or probably doing client work and they might find themselves on a platform like Upwork or something else when they would rather be selling directly to customers. So how did you make that leap and start making covers directly for authors? First step, website. You know, present yourself as an expert, present yourself as a professional and have your own website that shows off your work. A great thing about being on Upwork 99 Designs, you're already building a portfolio, hopefully. And if you aren't and you're in book covers, then you can also do what we talked about, those pre-made book covers, just ideas out of your head. You can make that into your website and your portfolio. I think that's the, the biggest first step is to present yourself as a professional and a business. For me, I look to my local area. I'm in a community of people that are retired and there are author groups, there are writer groups. So I went and I mean, I'm, my method is always to be the expert in the room. <laughs> you went to local meetups and pitched yourself? Oh yeah. I did a full presentation. So I, I opened my business in January 2017. Now I was working and studying book covers, design and the marketing idea of it for six months while working on 99 designs. And so I, I get my website launched and I got a booking to speak to authors both in January 2017. And that's just me. Part of that advantage is I am an extrovert. So I do like speaking in front of people. I love educating people. I knew I knew more than authors because I had studied it. I knew how the book cover functioned as a marketing piece, not a representation of the story. And too many authors think it represents the story and it does not. When we come back, Mariah and I talk about her transition from selling designs on 99designs to building her own audience of authors. And later we talk about how she went from custom covers to designing covers based on her own ideas and selling them pre-made at scale right after this. If you know me, you know how much I believe in memberships. My membership is the core of my business and earning an income directly from your audience is one of the most sustainable ways for you to become a professional creator too. So I wanna tell you about today's sponsor, Uscreen. Uscreen is a beautiful all-in-one platform that helps content creators earn a living from their videos by unlocking predictable recurring revenue. You can host private live streams for your members, build an on-demand catalog of premium content, and Uscreen gives you a community hub to interact with your members too. They can access your community from their mobile phone, so your membership is right there in their pocket. With a Uscreen account, you get video hosting, an out-of-the-box website, full payment and subscription management, and plenty of third-party integrations too. And Uscreen makes it easy to get set up. You get access to powerful website themes that are fully brandable with no coding skills required. Uscreen will even provide a dedicated success manager for you. 
Just about anyone that wants to make money from their content can do it with Uscreen. It's perfect for coaches, authors, influencers, and entrepreneurs in just about any niche. Right now, Uscreen is used by creators in fitness, education, news, kids entertainment, and more. That includes Yoga with Adrian and Creator Now, just to name a couple. Uscreen is the platform for building a video membership site that is great for generating a sustainable income for professional creators. If you create video content for your audience, I highly recommend checking it out. If you're interested in learning more about Uscreen, visit uscreen.link slash J. That's U-S-C-R-E-E-N dot link slash J and let them know that I sent you. You may or may not know that I have a bit of a domain buying obsession. Whether it's a new project idea or domains related to my existing projects, I'm buying them all. I have creatorscience.tv, creatorscience.fm. So let me tell you about my newest purchase. It's jklaus.bio. Connection with your audience is everything. We make all this content and then we want to direct our audience somewhere. Well, a great new option is with a .bio domain. Instead of some long link tree or third-party URL that people can't understand and is hard to say out loud, using your .bio domain for your link in bio lets you manage all your links in one spot with a custom domain that tells people exactly who you are. It's short, it's memorable, it's professional. Your .bio domain name is your way to share yourself with the world. And right now, you can get your own .bio domain name for less than $3 at Porkbun. Yes, it's a real website and a real registrar. Just visit porkbun.com slash creator. That's P-O-R-K-B-U-N dot com slash creator. Let me tell you about one of my favorite podcasts that I've been listening to for years. It's called The $100 MBA Show. And wherever you are on your business journey, The $100 MBA Show has lessons that can help you take the next step forward. The $100 MBA Show is a best of Apple Podcasts winner, literally one of the top Apple Podcasts of all time. And it's hosted by my friend and former guest, Omar Zenholm. Omar is a business school dropout turned successful entrepreneur, and he shares real world lessons on starting, growing, and scaling your business. You may even know his software product, Webinar Ninja. What I love about The $100 MBA Show is that these are well-produced, bite-sized episodes on everything from creating a product, connecting with your market, sales, building a team, and more. This show is legit. It does over 2 million downloads every month. Whether you're a small-time solopreneur or scaling your startup to investor level, there's valuable real-world advice for you in The $100 MBA's archive of thousands of episodes with new episodes three days a week. If that sounds interesting to you, and it should, just search for $100 MBA Show wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, welcome back. When we left Mariah's story, she was beginning to sell book covers on 99designs, which she had mixed emotions about. But it wasn't long until she was selling covers directly to her own audience of authors. I wanted to close that gap and understand how she made that transition from marketplace to her own clientele so quickly. I started off doing any cover that would come my way, nonfiction, fiction, any genre. And my first pre-made event was really all my 99 Designs rejects. So I just kind of gave gave them a new title, maybe reworked them again and just saw if anyone wanted to buy them. And they were cheap. They were like 40 bucks or something. I think I even went as low as $20 for some of them. And where did you, how did you market them? Get them in front of people? Facebook. So Facebook, I, I personally really liked uh, Facebook the most, especially in 2017, 2018. I really liked the group function. Um, at the time, your posts were actually seen by your audience. People 
joined your group and they were more of your super fans. You know, that they had shown interest and I would just post them up there. I did put them on the website. Many designers will sell directly in Facebook. Like they'll send, they'll send an invoice through. That's not me. I, I like having it. I'll show it. I'll promote it on Facebook, but you're going to buy from my website. And I had just a little cluster of reject covers from 99designs. Let's see if we can do something with these. And people liked them and they bought them. And that was a huge mindset shift for me because here I was kind of struggling with one custom here, one there. And all of a sudden I had $2,000 worth of sales. That was a lot of money for the girl who knew a bag of black beans costs a dollar and will feed me for three days. That was a huge shift of understanding quantity and lump sum money and how much more powerful a lump sum money was. So fast forward, I'm feeling competition from other designers. I am working on a laptop, not on a drawing pad. I'm seeing all these amazing digital artists and I'm not as good as them, like point blank. It's going to take a lot of practice for me to be as good as them. And I need to pay bills now. So I start looking at different genres of covers. And when I looked at a lot of the indie covers by, by self-publishing authors in Cozy Misty, they were ugly, like point blank, they were ugly. So I saw a gap in the market. And I'm like, I like this. Well, a great way to build up your portfolio to get custom clients is to make pre-made covers. Even if they don't sell, you get to prove to future clients that you can do this genre. I even went into a cozy author group and I said, hey guys, I don't see a lot of pre-made cozy book covers. Would you like some? Like, would you like that? And oh no, you can't make pre-mades for cozies. You can't do it. Because at the time, pre-made book covers were more about generic and cozies are very specific. You've got a pig sidekick, you're in, you know, Seattle, you've got all these things that are very specific to the story. And they said, there's no way you can make that generic. It's like, okay, fair enough. I hear that. I still need to make pre-mades for my portfolio. So I just started coming up with ideas and making funny puns. And that changed everything. Pre-mades went from being generic afterthoughts for already written stories to authors seeing my covers and being inspired by them and wanting to write stories to match what they saw on the covers. Game changer. What makes a good, cozy mystery cover? What are the elements that are important? Well... The most important part is to have a title that um, says it's a cozy mystery. And I don't mean literally, though many times that will be in the subtitle, but it's generally a pun or a play on words using alliteration and something dangerous or crime oriented or murder oriented (laughs) with something a little more lighthearted. And that's your number one tip that this is a cozy mystery. Because sometimes the artwork looks like it could be for a middle grade school. But when you add it with the title, that's what says, okay, this is a book for an adult and maybe a little tongue in cheek. And that's what I believe draws most of the readers. 
is having that punny, kitschy title. I'm looking at some of these, uh, mind your manners. This is looks right. like it's a, a series about properties. Mind your manners, duplex, mm-hmm. double trouble, the last resort. <laughs> like there's almost a groan when you read the, the covers. They are. I mean, yes, they delight me. And I think if people outside the industry groan, then we're probably doing our job. But people in the cozy world, we just love them. We giggle. They go, oh, that's a good one. That's a good one. And that's that's the delight of it. And for me, it's uh, helping, you know, being a part of that creative synergy with another person that my cover inspired them to write a book. Hopefully it ends up on a bestseller, but I'm a part of, you know, I was talking about being a part of corporate machines and how that wasn't a good fit for me. Being a part of the creative machine with another creative and that synergy, that's what feeds me. So when you were selling your 99design rejects, you were going into pre-existing Facebook groups, right? That wasn't like your own Facebook group. You were finding author groups. A mixture. Okay. So you had already started your Facebook group. Yeah. There was like a hundred people in there. So the best way to do it, you know, a book cover is bait for readers, but it's also a pre-made cover is bait for authors. So by using an event model, I can post it in an existing marketplace for covers. And I can say, I'm having an event in two weeks. There's going to be 20 other covers there. If you want to see all those covers, how about you join Mm. my group? We're going to have a great time. We're going to have a lot of fun, see a lot of pretty covers. We call them just pretties. There's going to be a lot of pretties there. Come on over. You know, it's it's a little bit like that carnival barker. <laughs> so this is this is something about the industry that I think is kind of unique. You're, you're describing these events, these mm-hmm. like marketplaces and events. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Well, yeah, a, a pre-made event is just like releasing a lot of product at once. I would assume it's very similar to launching a course. You have a date that you're going to share your goods, open your sales cart. In the pre-made book cover world, you are releasing all of them to buy. And mine generally were so big, I crashed my website every time, except for this last time. I finally found a good web host that my website did not crash. But... Every time before, I would crash right at the top of the hour when everything was released and went live. And then within two minutes, it'd come back up online. It's a feeding frenzy. And most of the covers that are going to be sold sell in the first five to 10 minutes. Then a few more will trickle in within the first hour. And then the next morning, a few more will sell. And I think it's like they kind of make a deal with God. Okay, if that set is still there tomorrow morning, it's meant for me. <laughs> I'm going to buy That's it. That's hilarious. I love that. <laughs> so there's always a trickle the morning after when people wake up. So for me, this became that addictive quality again, right? That, that challenge. I would say, okay, I'm going to make 250 book covers in a month or six weeks and put them up for sale. And then the next one, okay, I'm going to make 300. Now, rarely did I ever make that number, but I would be a couple dozen shy of it. You know, it was still this big push. It was a rush. And then I would upload them to the site. All the time I'd have my clients or my fans in my my Facebook group cheering me on 
how close are you now? Are you close to 250? That's amazing. Yeah. And uh, in the beginning, I'd even put out goals. I'm like, I really would love to buy a new computer. And if we sell $3,000 worth of product, I'll be able to buy a new computer. And the dynamic shifted from having this be people I was selling to, like almost, I think sometimes that can feel adversarial, that seller and buyer thing. Like I'm trying to pull one over on you or you're trying to get a deal from me. And it changed that dynamic to them cheering me on to making my goal first for how many covers I'm going to design to then making that goal of how much money I'm going to make so I can buy a new computer. And they'd ask, did you make your goal? Did you make your goal? Now, as my prices have increased, I don't do that quite as much because they don't necessarily want to know I just made $12,000. There's a point there from struggling artists making good to very successful person who's not intentionally rubbing their nose in it, but you being conscious that not everyone has the capability of making $12,000 in 15 minutes. Now, obviously I worked a few months to make that product to sell, but it does feel like $12,000 in 15 minutes when it's happening. Amazing. And how much were you selling pre-mates for and how much do you sell them for now? I started off at $40 to $50 each. Um, a lot of that was the rejects from 99 designs. As I realized I had, I was selling more story kits. I think I went up to a hundred dollars a cover. Most all of my covers are sold in series though. So it was 100 for cover, but to buy the set, it was $300. This last event, I tried something different, which was called an early buyout. And two days before my quote unquote event on Saturday, on Thursday, I doubled all the prices and said, if you really want it, you can get it two days early for twice as much. And to my surprise, people actually paid that amount. And then two days later, they dropped and more people bought at the lower rate. But I did have a few people buy at that double price and everyone knew it. It was all transparent. Everyone knew in two days it was going to drop to my regular pricing. If it was still there. And it was still there. And a few people who do make a lot of money as authors thought that this was a good investment for their business and went ahead and paid that double price. I mean, there's so much inherent, like ethical scarcity here. Like Mm -hmm. you're not going to print a book with the same cover as another book. So you can't sell the same cover to multiple customers. So if you really want this, like here's a way to ensure that it's going to be yours. I think it's so smart. I think doing that early release pre-sale for something like this is incredible because it's all differentiated. A lot of times when you do like a pre-sale in the creator world, you're selling like this infinitely scalable asset that anyone can have the same exact experience. So like the pre-sale, usually it's like discounted, like, hey, come get it early. And you're doing the exact opposite, which is incredible. Yeah. And it, it was a mind shift for me. I wasn't sure it was a good fit for me. Two years ago, auctions were a big deal in the book cover world. So they'd put up a pre-made and there'd be auctions. You'd watch a book cover or a set of book covers go for $2,000, $3,000 at auction. That was not a good model for me. I just didn't, I just didn't like the auction model. It was, it was too much handing over people with wealth where I felt the early buyout was a mixture, a nice mixture. Yeah. Auction's tough because 
as you grow in popularity and more people enter the auction, it gets to be a worse experience for people who have been there for a long time. Uh-huh. Yeah, it was never a model I went. It has gone out of, uh, out of vogue for book cover designers right now. If you're comfortable sharing, how much have you generated in pre-made sales since you started doing this in 2016, 2017? Well, I started, yeah, so I started in 2017 and I was shocked to look up the number because I did look it up and it was over $85,000 in a few years. How many is that? Four years? My first event was in October of 2017 and my most recent was in November of 2021. I don't know what year it is. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> That's amazing. And how much time do you spend doing custom covers for for clients who just want to commission you for that? I honestly don't know. <laughs> I did not do a lot in 2021 because I was launching a different business and trying to move into something that was scalable with courses and directory. It ended up not being a good fit for me. I did spend a lot of time doing that. So I scaled back my customs. And I was actually worried about my income when I looked at my year around the fall. I'm looking at how much I've made this year and it was not much. I was like, well, let's see if a pre-made sale will fix that. And it did. And I was really happy that my client base was ready for more (laughs) pre-mates. But it varies. I can, I think in 2020 and 20. 21, I was designing anywhere from 15 to 30 customs a month. However, they were all series continuations. I was not taking on new projects or new clients. And series continuations are really quick for me because the the overall rough part of the design has already been decided. Do you see yourself continuing to just go deeper in the world of cozy mysteries or do you think you'll branch out into other genres? Oh, There's a few genres that are kind of adjacent to it. A new one that came up recently is paranormal women's fiction. And a lot of urban fantasy authors have moved into that genre. And a lot of cozy authors are moving into that genre, expanding. I guess where my clients are expanding, I entertain also expanding that genre. I don't know how much I want to build up brand new audiences all of the time. Audience building is one of the hardest parts of any freelancer or creator career. And so if I can just figure out how to add to that audience with more of it, but using some of my same tools and leads, that's what I want to do. Earlier in our conversation, Mariah had this passing comment that a book cover functions as a marketing piece, not as a representation of the content itself. That was a really interesting distinction she made. And I wanted to circle back to that and talk about the purpose of a good book cover. It represents the genre. You want your book cover, especially in fiction. So I I work predominantly in fiction and I will, I will also share a little bit about nonfiction, but in fiction, especially it is the genre that dictates the design. Your book cover is bait to attract your ideal reader. So if I only like reading vampire books, that's the only thing I like reading. I, whether consciously or subconsciously, know what vampire book covers look like. So when I'm looking at a row of book covers, whether in a bookstore or most likely on Amazon or Barnes and Noble, I'm like a laser shark. Like I can zero in on that vampire book on the best new releases in a second if it's well designed. And that's what your book cover is doing. It is bait to find your ideal readers. 
man. So this is this is conflicting for me because I 100% believe that to be true. Uh, it makes a ton of sense. Something had to have defined that genre style. And like, yeah. how does that get changed? How does that get redefined? Generally by traditional publishing. So remember, I work in self-publishing. So we are kind of uh, the barnacles on whales. We, you know, traditional publishing can decide that the aesthetic changes. They put a ton of money into that change. Their authors are on all the morning TV shows. Their book becomes a bestseller. And then that starts to shift the design aesthetic. But even, I would say that traditional publishing has a wider spectrum of genre that they can work with. Like they can play around with the aesthetics a lot more than we probably do in self-publishing, but they still stick with it. Like you can show me traditional publishing books and I can give a pretty honest stab on what genre those are. Something else that you've mentioned to me before, because we've been on video calls before and you've looked at my bookshelf and you've commented on how it's color coordinated. And I told you how frustrating it is that I'll have this vision in my mind of a book in the cover and I say, okay, I know where to find that on the shelf, but the spine is actually colored differently. And you use the term spine appeal. So talk to me about spine appeal and, and how you then design that for a cover. I learned that with Channeling Biker Bob. So <laughs> All the way back to Channeling Biker Bob. Well, it, all go, it all links back. Yeah, so Biker Bob told me that. That's not his name. His name was Nick. But he told me that the first version of that book that they printed, and I don't think it was their major run. It was a smaller run of that book. I had that pretty chrome cursive type on the spine because that was branding. And he says, bookstores want spine appeal. They want it really readable and they want it attractive. So it went to from the pretty chrome type to big white block letters on that blue sky, but they were blocky. Not my first choice, but it gave it spine appeal. So with your books, and I can see behind your head, you have a lot of yellow and red and orange. And you can see if most of the business books in that genre are more on the grays, blues, whatever, that yellow spine is going to stick out if it's in a bookstore. Not every book in a bookstore is faced outward. In fact, very few are faced outward. So that would grab your eye. Now, then once one book does that, then they right, all follow like a suit. Cycle, right? So now everything's yellow and then blue becomes in vogue. Oh, mm -hmm. wow. So you're, you're going to these author groups. You're helping them to understand what markets a book. Here's another limiting belief or assumption I had made, which is if I'm self-publishing, I'm selling no books. I, for, for some reason, I just, I've always thought that if you're not traditionally published or if you don't already have like some built-in audience, you're just not going to sell your book. And you've now represented hundreds of cozy mystery bestsellers. So how do these books become bestsellers? Like what's going on that I don't understand in these authors' worlds that they're selling so many copies? There's a lot going on, Jay. <laughs> it is an entire ecosystem. Amazon really opened up the wild, wild west of print on demand and self-publishing in a lot of great ways, even though sometimes I don't like them as a company. When I think about the access that authors now have to building their own audience and providing literature that that audience wants to read, it's incredible. It's inspiring that you don't need a gatekeeper anymore. You are the master of your domain. How do they do this? Well, 
Well, the ones that are successful, not everyone is successful at this. And it does take some investment by having covers and editing to, to get that ball rolling. But the ones that are successful, they really know what tropes the readers want and they just keep on giving their audience that same trope, whatever it is. With cozies. Have you seen Only Murders in the Building on Hulu? I have not yet, but it, okay. it is a cozy. I am. It's on my is list. It, it okay. is on my I, list. You're describing this. I'm like, I think that's a cozy mystery. And I yeah. love that experience. And Knives Out was also mm. leaning into that cozy mystery, especially because you have a set set of characters in one house. Now they broke free of the house, the story, not that they were trapped in the house for those who haven't seen it, but the story goes outside the house. But it's also that same thing, multiple suspects, amateurs, amateur sleuth, and justice served at the end. So that's what the authors are giving them. They're giving quirky characters, sometimes some humor, Sometimes real problems to solve, like there's puzzles involved so that it's, it's working the reader's mind. But at the end, you know justice is going to be served. The bad guy's going to get caught and he's going to have to pay for his crimes. So these authors that you work with, is this genre just growing and really exploding right now? So they create a book and an audience finds the book or are they really cultivating and growing their own audience the way that like a lot of creators on the show that we talk to do? The audience generally already exists, but it is competitive. It was growing a great deal in 2019, 2018. There was a huge surge. A lot of romance authors moved into Cozy because they thought it might be a quick buck. There are no quick bucks in our world. <laughs> Not anymore. So the best ways to write a series. And a lot of authors will plan out something that can easily be a six-book series. One of my pre-made sets is now 30 books. It started off as five that she bought. So she is just delivering wow. that same thing over and over again. Authors, a lot of authors are not in direct competition with each other. They actually share readers. So they develop newsletters just like other creators. They get that email address. Most of the time they do that by giving away a free book. Get that email address. Then the authors will get together and do what's called newsletter swaps, where I will promote your book in my newsletter, you promote my book, in, and it just keeps growing and growing. And then there's the huge part of paid advertising. Amazon allows for paid advertising on their platform, and then there's also Facebook ads. And I would say that's the predominant two places that many of the successful authors are paying for ads. It's so weird. I no longer think about Amazon as like a bookseller and especially not as like a book discovery engine. But I bet that's still very much true that people are looking for books and mm -hmm. they find new books on Amazon. That's kind of what I was asking is not not about are these authors growing the audience of cozy novels generally, but like, am I continuing to sell into the same customers of people who are following me who are buying my books or am I getting organic discovery from my product itself? A mixture. You have the bestseller list. So I don't design covers that show up on the primary Amazon bestseller. Cozy just doesn't have that kind of pull. But if you go to the Cozy bestseller list, you'll see quite a few of my covers. And Amazon has that for every category. They have a top 100 sold in every category. So if there's a genre that you love, whatever it may be, and, you know, think of People who like reading generally like reading a lot. 
they can go and see what grabs their eye and go and buy it. Um, a lot of books are free or 99 cents, first in series that, you know, that lead magnet model works with books just as well. And a lot have adopted that. If I self-publish a book and sell it for 99 cents or uh, even make it free on Amazon, do I get the email address of the person who purchased? I don't believe so. I'm guessing not. I Most, you don't. The idea with a, a first in series free is that you have five books behind it and that they will you will have positive read through. And so that's the only time you really want your first book to be really cheap. And am I right in assuming that most of your clients who purchase your, your books are self-publishing? 100% of them. Yeah. Okay. I mean, I guess I have one client who is starting a small publishing company and I work all of his wife's, wife's color, one wife multiple series that I designed for her. And he just brought in a new author. I still kind of consider that in the umbrella of self-publishing. Sure. I think I read on your website that you live in your own cottage now with a couple of cats. Yes. <laughs> yes. So I started my business in January, 2017 and was out May, 2017 of my parents. I am very appreciative that they let me stay there though, that it ended up giving me uh, a stable springboard to explore this option, to build it up organically. And I'm so happy that I found this business and just the whole self-publishing industry and you know, I, I made that mistake when I was 28 of needing a new challenge and burning what I had done before. And I think for me now, I don't have to burn down what I build to seek out new challenges because self-publishing is such a large industry with so many different facets to create or help or serve or profit, whatever goal I'm looking for at that time. And I can work with the same audience or an adjacent audience being book cover designers and never have to burn down what I just built while I'm seeking out those new challenges. And for me, that's the big lesson, I guess, of adulting is try not to burn down things just to seek out a new challenge because poverty sucks. <laughs> I really enjoyed this interview with Mariah. Even though I've known her for more than a year now, so much of her story was completely new to me too. And it's one heck of a story. I think it's important to highlight stories like Mariah's that aren't completely linear. Stories where success didn't necessarily feel inevitable. We all have our own path. Sometimes that takes us through different cities, different jobs, and even back home to living with family. But that path is what makes our story unique. It's what allows us to bring a unique perspective and a unique skill set to the world. If you want to learn more about Mariah, you can visit her website at mariahsinclair.com or thecovervault.com. Links to both are in the show notes. Thanks to Mariah for being on the show. Thank you to Emily Klaus for making the artwork for this episode. Thanks to Nathan Tonhunter for mixing this show and Brian Skeel for creating our music. If you like this episode, you can tweet at jklaus and let me know. And if you really want to say thank you, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Thanks for listening and I'll talk to you next week.
the Podglomerate. A Sonic Universe.